This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are so pleased to have back with us today on the show District Attorney David Sullivan. David Sullivan is the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which is comprised of the counties of Hampshire and Franklin. Longtime District Attorney David Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us today. I really want, we really want your opinion on something. Front page of all today's today's newspapers and in the media across the country. Uh, ex-leader of Proud Boys sentenced to 22 years in January 6th sedition case. The prison term for Enrique, Enrique Tario was the most severe penalty handled, handed down so far to any of the more than 1,100 people charged in connection with the Capitol attack. 22 years in prison for the central role he played in organizing what happened on January 6, 2021. His sentence stemmed from his conviction on charges of seditious conspiracy. What I'd like to know from you, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, is what you think of the sentence. And in particular, what do you think of the length of the sentence? 22 years in prison. That's a long time. What are your thoughts? Uh, Well, good morning, uh, Buzz and Bill. Uh, As far as the sentence, uh, it's a very severe sentence. Uh, if you were in Massachusetts, you got convicted of second-degree murder, you'd get 15 years to life, which would mean you'd be eligible after 15 years. Oh, so I'm that's sorry, the, it's the proportionality. Um, what I thought was extreme was the prosecutor's recommendation of 33 years. Now, that's, that's a really substantial amount of time. If the judge had gone along with that 33 years, that's basically almost the rest of, of, of his life. I think he's probably in his 40s, uh, from what I can tell. I mean, that would have been his lifetime. So, you know, the federal guidelines are much more uh, severe than um, the state guidelines. I can say that for most crimes. So, um, yeah, he's going to be spending a lot of time. I thought the judge did a good job of making sure that it was fair and proportional to the other defendants. The co-defendant got 18 years. And that's where the judge articulated that it should be closer to what that co-defendant had gotten as opposed to the the amount of time recommended by the federal prosecutor. But this was about the first time in our U.S. history that the transition of power had not been peaceful. And this is going to live with our democracy forever because this was not a, a peaceful transition of power. It was a violent transition of power. What I would appreciate knowing from you, D.A. David Sullivan, is how you go about and how your office goes about determining what a recommendation will be when there's going to be a prison sentence or a jail sentence. I have the uh, belief that we sometimes forget that these are hours and days and weeks and months and years in jail and every day can be a very long day. And that we sometimes lose track of, and I'm not trying to make an argument for a shorter sentence for the Proud Boy leader, but I am trying to raise the issue of what's an appropriate amount of time to put somebody in a cage. And I'd appreciate your telling us, how does your office go about figuring out what the rec- a recommendation will be for uh, a sentence to jail or prison when there's not a mandatory, mandatory sentence? I think what's important, 
is the philosophy of your office, and every DA's office is different. My philosophy, and it's articulated right within our sentencing guidelines, is jail or prison should be a last resort. If you start from that point of view, you try to figure out everything as an alternative to jail or prison. Going from there, I think we have sentencing guidelines that I think encompass not only the Massachusetts sentencing guidelines, but also our own. And you want to look at the individual. You want to look at the crime. You want to look at a lot of factors. And you really don't know where you're going to go with a a sentence or you shouldn't until the very end. You you have a basic idea maybe, but is this uh, defendant remorseful? Is this person learned uh, his or her lesson? And in this case, the judge found that this person, uh, although apologizing to law enforcement and people that were involved that day, did not apologize for the acts that were committed. Uh, so he, he got he got penalized for not being remorseful. Um, but 22 years is a long time. I agree with that um, in the proportionality of where these defendants lie. Because I know some got probation, uh, the lesser, uh, but this was the ringleader. You know, there was two real substantial uh, people that were involved in this um, these acts against Congress, and he he was the he was the kingpin, so to speak. So uh, I don't think anybody else will get more than this. But certainly, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if there's any active um, uh, leaders anymore that need to be prosecuted. I think we should point out that under the federal in the federal system, those 22 years means really close to serving 22 years, 85% minimum of the sentence itself. So they do not, they, they do not give good time the way that uh, Massachusetts and other states do, I, I, which I think is a shame because I think there needs to be more of an incentive for people to change their lives, take courses, you know, do things within the, the, the prison walls that, that change them. And, you know, if you're not going to get credit for uh, time served, I think people just sit there and do nothing. Let me ask you this, David Sullivan, because I think it would be a real service, public service for you to explain this. How do the sentencing guidelines work in Massachusetts? You've referred to the state guidelines. What are the guidelines and are they guidelines or are they mandatory and how do they compare to the federal guidelines? The the guidelines in Massachusetts aren't strict uh, like the federal used to be. I know the federal has a little bit more flexibility, but they're pretty strict. And you have, the judge has to really be within the, the walls of those. In Massachusetts, it's guidance. It's not um, required, uh, but it just gives uh, a judge some idea of what a group of people many years ago said, hey, this is what we should do. There's more recent guidelines that, that came down, I think, four or five years ago, that are supposed to be adopted by the legislature, but they weren't. <laughs> so they, they, they don't really have um, any any teeth, so to speak, you know, because they they weren't finally approved by the legislature. But it just gives a judge – a judge has full discretion. It will, there is a sentencing appeal uh, within Superior Court where, where that sentence of that judge can be appealed um, – but I don't think they change it all too often. I, I think that's kind of a it's – it's an avenue for appeal, but it, I don't think it, it prevails too often. Um, but, yeah, I, I, a, a judge looks at those guidelines. The probation department runs those. Uh, but, again, uh, the judge is going to listen to the defense. They're going to listen to the prosecution. They're going to listen to probation, and they'll make his or her own decision.
I did read in today's paper that the prosecution in this in this case uh, against uh, the leader of the Proud Boys, uh, Enrique Tarrio, was the prosecution is going to appeal and say the sentence is too lenient and so outside the guidelines uh, or the way the guidelines should have been interpreted and applied that he should get more time. And they're going to go – they're going to appeal to the Court of Appeals uh, with regard to the sentence. One last question on this. Well, I just want to add both sides have announced that they're going to appeal. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Very helpful, Buzz. Um, District Attorney Dave Sullivan, when you have a case, and I would like to posit a, a serious case um, that's not a mandatory minimum, such as uh, life sentences for first-degree murder or second-degree murder and a number of drug uh, charges that have mandatory minimums as well, when you don't have that kind of a situation, how do you go about the length of time? You say, okay, this case is deserving. I, I something I have a hard time wrapping my mind around, but somehow is deserving of putting a person in a prison. How do you go about mm-hmm. figuring out how long you're going to recommend? Again, you have all those factors, uh, you know, behind the, the person's background, what's their criminal record, many different factors that you want to look at as to the, um, the length of the sentence. And you also look at the office's precedent. <laughs> Ten years ago, they pretty much the exact same crime, somebody received five years, uh, you'd look at that too, because you don't wanna you don't wanna exceed what the what the norm is, so to speak. Uh, but you don't always have those uh, guidelines. So um, for example, our first uh, assistant district attorney, Steve Gagney, is the one that um, is in charge of Superior Court. And so his memory, at least over the last twelve years, would be important because um, he's the one that is the gatekeeper, so to speak, of all our Superior Court cases. So that review, it gets reviewed by usually two people, um, a, a recommendation before a prosecutor would go with it. In other words, it would go to his or her supervisor and then probably up to Steve. Um, he looks at all those things. So you, you try to be fair to everybody. And, again, you don't want to exceed – you don't want to ask for any more time than you think is necessary for public safety or for um, whatever the – the purpose may be that rehabilitation, you know, for example, you know, it's much different when people go to county jail because they're going to get help. They're going to get rehabilitation. They're going to get offered services, mental health services. Prisons are warehouses. It's very hard for me to imagine a lot of rehabilitation going on in a state prison. So um, so that's usually the biggest call is, hey, is this going to stay? Is this sentence going to still be a county sentence? Where they're going to get help and rehabilitation, or are we kind of saying, "Hey, you're going to go to state prison because of the severity of the crime, um, or possibly that this is the 20th time that this person has broken into a, a house"? Is there something that requires state prison? So, yeah, there's a lot of factors. There's, there's no magic formula. There really isn't. So that's why the discretion of the prosecutors is so important to use it judiciously and, and fairly for uh, the public and for the defendant. We are speaking with District Attorney David Sullivan, District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which is comprised of Franklin and Hampshire counties. We'd like to turn our attention now, if it's okay with you, District Attorney, to what the Supreme Judicial Court decided this week with regard to the punishment for the lawyers, for the prosecutors, for the attorneys general who were involved with the drug lab scandal. 
one of those prosecutors, Ann Kaczmarek, has been disbarred and the other has been uh, sent, sent, sentence is not quite the word, has received the punishment of suspension of her license to practice law for a year and a day. Buzz, I know you have a number of questions for the DA about uh, this. The microphone's yours. Indeed I do. Uh, and and one, their supervisor also was publicly recommended, reprimanded after uh, being suspended for three months and having the Supreme Judicial Court uh, reverse that decision but uh, require that he be publicly reprimanded. It lowered The SJC lowered the punishment that had been imposed by the Board of Bar Overseers. That's, that's exactly right. I just want to read before uh, I ask you about it, D.A. Sullivan, just a, a couple of paragraphs from the State House News Service article yesterday by Colin Young. The Supreme Judicial Court agreed Thursday that the Assistant Attorney General who led the state's prosecution of criminal chemist Sonia Farrakh should be disbarred and another suspended for a year and a day because they crossed that line between fair and foul. And what they did that caused them to cross that line, uh, D.A. Sullivan, is they failed or refused to give exculpatory evidence. Could you explain what exculpatory evidence is and why they should be, one should be disbarred and the other suspended for failing or refusing to turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense? So for, for those that uh, don't remember, this was the drug scandal out of the UMass uh, DPH lab that got taken over by the state police, and the, the lab was closed. Sonia Farak had been using drugs and also stealing drugs um, that had been seized by the law enforcement. Um, and what happened was that they didn't let uh, the defense know about her drug addiction that was in papers that had been seized. In other words, there was evidence that was sitting there um, that the, both the Board of Bar Overseers and obviously the SJC agreed with them that it wasn't negligence that they didn't look at it, but it was intentional. So these intentional acts of not giving that important discovery over to the defense, which was Luke Ryan and other attorneys, um, was deemed to be a very serious uh, offense. And, and, and I agree with that. Is One of the things that makes our system fair is that the defense, gets all the information or most of the information, unless there's some ruling that it's confidential or it can't go, that they get the materials that we have as a prosecution so that they can fairly defend an individual or individuals. In this case, thousands and thousands of cases rode on this discovery. In other words, when you found out that she was a drug addicted and she was stealing drugs, that undermined all the cases she touched, in my opinion, everything uh, everything that she touched uh, became tainted in some way, shape, or form. And by intentionally excluding that, exculpatory just means it tends to help or to uh, find that uh, defendant, um, that information, evidence will help the defense. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It just has to help that defense. So that exculpatory uh, material, you know, her records of uh, drug addiction and treatment or whatever, um, it just wasn't produced after many, many years of being there. And so, you know, that's um, it just it undermines the, the criminal justice system. And I think that uh, the sentence that uh, or I should say the, the recommendation and the, the outcome, I think, is very fair. I think that um, the person who led this prosecution um 
you know, did not do what they were supposed to do under under the law. And uh, and I think that it was an appropriate uh, recommendation. And these were assistant attorneys general. These are high-ranking, yeah. important lawyers. Powerful in the state. lawyers. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right, right back with more with District Attorney Dave Sullivan. Among other things, we want to ask him about what's this proposal to take away all the authority, prosecutorial authority from the prosecutors in Georgia who have indicted Trump? Really? We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Fall is the perfect time to plant before the first frost, and Wines Nursery has hearty plants and growing advice. Plant trees and shrubs in the fall so root systems grow strong before winter. Plant leftover 2021 perennials and watch them flourish in the spring. Plant bulbs before October so roots have time to start. Add herb plants like lavender, sage, oregano, mint, chives, and parsley. Plant your garlic in October. Plant in the fall and be amazed in the spring. Planting services available. Visit Wines Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and at winesicknursery.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with David Sullivan, District Attorney for the Northwestern District. That's Hampshire and Franklin Counties. We have been talking about the Supreme Judicial Court's decision to affirm the decision of the Board of Bar Overseers to revoke the license of Ann Kuzmarek, who was the lead prosecutor uh, involved in the Sonia Farak case, the drug lab scandals. Uh, another district attorney, former assistant, I'm sorry, another former assistant attorney general, uh, Foster, uh, was uh, was received the punishment of a suspension of her law license for a year and a day, and a supervisor received a public rep- reprimand, which is a lesser sanction than what the Board of Bar Overseers had initially imposed. The district attorney has told us that he supports these decisions, and I'm wondering, and this opinion by the Supreme Judicial Court, and I'm wondering if you have a final word on this for us before we turn to another really important topic. Dave Sullivan? I think it was very important that the supervisor in this case, although removed, is responsible for what happens beneath them. So 
his public reprimand, it's serious. It taints your whole career, really, because the public knows that you were involved in something that should not have happened uh, that was, a, you know, serious, egregious conduct. So I think that was very important that uh, that, that person is held accountable along with the other two individuals that were directly involved. Yeah, we should point out that the evidence, part of the evidence was not turned off turned over to the defense sitting in the hands of the attorney general who is responsible for making this information known to other district attorneys and defendants that evidence was extremely important it showed that the chemist sonia farak was using drugs that were supposed to be tested and then, then she certified results of drug tests that she never performed, that never happened. And people went to prison because of that. But I have to ask you, uh, District Attorney Sullivan, as the chief of your office, uh, you have the ultimate supervisory uh, powers uh, among the, the assistant district attorneys in your office. And here we see that a supervisor got a public uh, punishment um, as a result of his failure to properly monitored those under him. How does that feel to you? Because Martha Coakley was the attorney general at the time. We haven't read anything about sanctions for her. No, I think they missed the mark on that one. You know, uh, Martha Coakley uh, did not put the resources into this particular matter that should have been put. I mean, it was another case in Eastern Mass. Uh, there was Annie Dukin. And uh, when it came to Western Mass, they treated this uh, like it was a misdemeanor. And... Um, the, the attention that was, should have been paid by the attorney general's office was completely lacking, and this is what came out of it. And we should note that because of the efforts of Luke Ryan and others who joined him in this extraordinary effort to seek justice, over 20,000 convictions were vacated and those ch- cases were dismissed. Yeah. An amazing yeah. piece and of then, lawyering. Yeah, well, no, he... He, he fought for the rule of law that it, it should have been handed over and it wasn't. And, you know, and I, I compliment uh, Luke Ryan for the work that he put into it. I want to turn our attention to it. It seems to me, as someone who's not a district attorney and has never worked for one, um, that the office of district attorney is under threat by some uh, movements that are happening down in Florida and Georgia, in, in Georgia and in D.C., uh, Fannie Willis is the Fulton County District Attorney who's brought charges against Donald Trump and his 18 co-conspirators, uh, allegedly, in a RICO, a, a racketeering uh, case is being uh, handled in Georgia. Um, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, signed a bill in May that makes it easier to remove duly elected district attorneys who are deemed by a commission, what's called the Qualifications Commission, to have exceeded their authority or not properly enforcing the law. We don't know what the standards are that they're going to judge this by. There are eight members of the commission that's going to be looking over the district attorney's shoulders. Um, and uh, three of those members were appointed by Lieutenant Governor Jones uh, there in, I think his name is Brian Jones, Bert Jones. Uh, he's re- the Republican Lieutenant Governor of Georgia. He appointed three of these members. Well, as a senator, he was one of the fake electors that the 19 co-conspirators are alleged to have uh, set up to undermine our election. I got to ask you, as a district attorney, your view on having the legislature and the executive branch 
uh, put together a, a commission that all 100 percent Republicans in this case that can undo not just your work, but move you from office and can undo the, the election by the voters. So, DA, Dave Sullivan, tell us about this. Well, I'll tell you, you hit it right on the mark. It's undermining the voters of Fulton County that they have elected who they believe has their values and will use her discretion wisely. And all of a sudden it's being supplanted by a political uh, committee, so to speak, to uh, undermine that election. So as far as that prosecutor is involved, you know, Fannie Willis, I mean, she needs to have the discretion and the independence to prosecute. And in this case, a grand jury that was led by her found that Donald Trump was not above the law, that the crimes that were committed, that he committed or potentially or allegedly committed, um, were serious and that he should be held accountable. And by having a separate commission that can have that chilling effect on prosecutions. So in other words, they're trying to say this is the, uh, the weaponization of a prosecutor, just the opposite. This is a prosecutor that's trying to do the right thing and should not face the loss of their job just because they did the right thing. So, um, and in this case, hearing that a fake elector appointed three people to this eight-person commission is just outrageous. It's just clearly that if you want to call about a process being rigged, this is it. And, and I want to know, District Attorney David Sullivan, whether or not you feel district attorneys feel concern about this because in Washington, the chair of the House uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, Republican Jim Jordan, he too wants to investigate uh, Willis. He's insinuating that the indictment was politically motivated and uh, he, he wants to create in Congress a review of this district attorney as a district attorney. Uh, how threatened do you feel by these moves? Well, uh, I signed on to an amicus brief uh, in this case with 83 prosecutors, former prosecutors, uh, attorney generals uh, from around the United States. What is an amicus brief? Uh, An amicus brief is a legal brief, a legal document that supports uh, this attorney general and her right to, um, you know, do what she needs to do to be independent. So, uh, I signed on to that because I thought it was extremely important for prosecutors around the entire nation to be able to have that discretion, that independence that's necessary, uh, because you don't want to be dictated by the political winds, and this is exactly what they want to undermine. And so this particular document was submitted to the court uh, that was that that is challenging uh, this commission and its ability to, uh, to enact uh or to, to do what is required, which is justice, that it will undermine Fannie Willis and, by extension, many prosecutors around the country. So there's a lawsuit going on that is challenging the authority of this commission to to remove the district attorney? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And, and w- can you tell us anything more about that lawsuit? Um, yeah, the, the, the lawsuit uh, was filed down in Georgia, um, as an, uh, that it's an unconstitutional <clears throat> commission, that it uh, it violates that separation of powers. So that that was what the, the brief 
really was was saying that the separation of powers between the prosecution and the executive branch uh, is being violated by the powers that this commission would have to remove any prosecutor they didn't agree with. (laughs) You know, it's one thing if they're going to remove Fannie Willis for a serious felony she committed after she'd been convicted. That's very different. Uh, This is for a uh, the authority to be able to go forward with evidence and to say, hey, listen, Donald Trump, and I think it was, it was there 18 others or 17 others uh, that were part of this uh, uh, overall, uh, you know, uh, criminal action uh, conspiracy that, um, you know, came down in the indictments in, in Fulton County. Um, but the long and the short of it is that this is standing for the principle of separation of powers and of the independence uh, and the discretion of prosecutors. And I just want to point out there were four district attorneys duly elected in their own counties uh, in yeah. Georgia who brought that suit to which you uh, filed a brief in support of their position, Bill. Any idea, district attorney, when the court will rule on this case? I don't know. You know I don't know what the timing is on it. Um, it will probably obviously go to the Georgia Supreme Court and maybe to the U.S. Supreme Court if it's if the appellate issues involve federal uh, jurisdiction. But, yeah, for Congress to be investigating prosecutors down in Georgia uh, does not seem appropriate at all. Seems political. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with the district attorney for the Northwestern District, Dave Sullivan. Thanks so much for being with us, DA. We really appreciate your time and your insights. Well, thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. There is a heat advisory in effect through 8 p.m. Thursday for Eastern Hamden, Eastern Hampshire, and Eastern Franklin County. The heat index will be near 100 degrees. Cooling centers will be open throughout Western Mass, including Northampton, where Forbes Library, Division of Community Care, and Mana Community Center are all open today and tomorrow. Lilly Library will also be open tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. The remains found on Rawson Island on August 23rd by a group of students has been identified by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner to be Brian Cornwell from Greenfield. Cornwell was reported missing in December 2020 and was 57 years old at the time. The cause of death is still under investigation by the Greenfield Police Department, Montague Police Department, State Police Crime Scene Services, and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit attached to the Northwestern DA's office. Anyone with information is asked to call 413-774-3186. Massachusetts residents may soon see more level electrical rates throughout the year as the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities has issued an order to mitigate large seasonal changes in electricity supply rates. In January of this year, the DPU began an investigation into pricing after customers saw significant rate increases in 2022 as a result of the conflict in Ukraine, regional constraints for electrical supply, and the coldest winter months within the same procurement period. Mostly sunny today with a high of 88 to 92 and a light breeze. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures 70s and 80s and an overnight low of 64 to 70. Tomorrow it's a mixture of sun and clouds. Hot with a high of 90 to 94 and the chance for some late day or evening showers. Showers also possible on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Mom. 
tell us about Tom Lake? A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hip, shoulder, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Welcome to our segment called Cool Films with Larry Hott. Larry Hott is the Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, and he is a member and a voting member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, known as the Oscars, and therefore he is reviewing films for his vote and approval for the Oscars. Before we get into the film you're going to tell us about today, which I understand is fascinating, tell us a bit about your role in voting for who wins the Oscars. The Oscars have several divisions. They have the actors, they have the actresses, which is the only time you use that word anymore. Uh, you have cinematographers, directors, etc. They all have divisions, and they all have governors within the Academy. And one of those divisions is a documentary division, which I am in. Um, I was nominated twice, and there's a whole rigmarole to get into the Academy, uh, but I was uh, received all the recommendations. This is years ago, more than 35 years ago. Uh, they have a system where they used to send you VHS tapes, which, and then and then uh, DVDs, which made me very popular with all my friends. And you had to sign documents say, "I will not show this to anybody else other than myself." And I never did. <laughs> I never showed them to my friends and never gave them away. But now it's all digital. Now we sign in and a double authentication, and it comes up on a website, and we can watch them, and they stay on until the night of the Oscars. The next day, they're all gone. It's really, it's really sad. Then you have to go get them like any other civilian. So they send me the, uh, a list. Uh, I get an email every couple of weeks and said, Larry, I wanted to let you know that you have been chosen <laughs> to watch these films. 
these two films, these five films, whatever. In the end, it's about 10% of all the films that are submitted. Other people are getting a different 10%, and then Price Waterhouse crouches, uh, uh, crunches the uh, scores that we give them. Price Waterhouse, the accounting firm. The accounting firm, who always have a seat at the table, by the way, at the Academy Awards. And the documentary people always end up sitting with the accountants. That's what they think of us at the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> and they crunch the numbers, and that's how the nominations happen. And all the other categories are doing the same thing. So that's how the nominations happen. And then and who then, decides the winners? And then all the members of the Academy can vote on all the nominations, which, if you're honest... It's a lot of viewing, right? Now, back in the day when people went to the theaters all the time, you would, by happenstance, see a lot of the movies anyway. Now it's a lot harder to find the time to watch them. So I concentrate on the documentaries, which I figure is my job. And honestly, Buzz and Bill, the reason that I put so much time into watching these documentaries is so I have something to say when I come on this show. <laughs> we, we, we appreciate that. Larry otherwise was exercising his right to remain silent. Anything he says will, can and will be used against him. But you have some reviews for us today, and you're very I, excited about this. I am excited about this one. And I would tell you, that's an amazing coincidence happened be, before I watched this film. August 30th, at night, was the night of the supermoon. And my family was visiting... We walked outside and we looked up at the moon and it was full moon and it was low to the ground and it was just brilliant and we stared at it and we stared at it and I actually texted my neighbors and I said, come out, you have to see this. I actually created a riddle, which is when is a blue moon a red moon? And when it, is that? It was a blue moon, meaning the second in the month, and it was red because it was in the pierogi. Perigi? How do you pronounce that? The closest? Pierogi. Pierogi. That's how you say it. <laughs> Isn't so, that a Polish food? A so that's so. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. So we're staring at the moon, right? The next day, my four-year-old grandson is in the house with the rest of the family, and he's playing with his iPad, and he's got the face distortion app. I'm not sure if that's the real name of it, but you can look into it and make your face do all kinds of weird shapes, turn your head upside down, pull your lips apart, and he's playing with this thing. And I'm thinking, this is amazing that this exists, and this four-year-old, a digital native, could do anything he wants with this app. And then I open up my computer, and there's my assignment for the day, and the film is called... Moon is the oldest TV. And I thought, what a great title. And it's about Nam June Pak, the video artist, who I'm familiar with from I don't know how many exhibits at the Whitney, at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, at S. MOCA, Museum of Contemporary Art, the most famous video artist in the world. But I know nothing about him. And I look at the title, and it's Moon is the oldest TV. And instantly I think, I get it. Because I just spent an hour outside staring at the moon and thinking, what did people think when they looked at the moon? They just stared at it, right? So let me tell you a little bit about this film. Nam Joon Pak, who is from Korea, is basically the inventor of the subversion of television. By that I mean he comes on the scene in the early 50s when everybody's beginning to be transfixed with television. And he says... You're looking at the TV, but the TV is actually looking at you, right? It's not a one-way medium. It's a two-way medium, and that is amazing change. And there's a sea change in thinking. We have a clip of the film. They're going to play the first minute of the trailer, and you'll get a sense of how important Nam June Pak was as a video artist and how he affected your lives. Although I'm an artist... 
I'm not really concerned about so said art world. I'm concerned to whole world. Today, I thought we could talk about someone who is widely regarded as the father of video art. Nam June Pike, avant-garde musician, self-taught engineer. The Nostradamus of the digital age. He envisioned the internet. could see where all of this was going. This is a glimpse of a video landscape of tomorrow. The future that he was predicting was that every artist would be his own channel. Look where we are now with selfies. It is called Internet. So you got a sense there. He actually is credited with the idea of the information superhighway, if not the Internet itself. Now, remember I mentioned my four-year-old grandson, Temin, looking at the distortion app. Well, one of the first things that Namjoon Pak does with the television is distort the image and distort the face in exactly the same way you see on an iPad now, and this is he's doing in the early 50s. Let me give you a little sense of who this guy is. He's born in 1932 in Korea to extremely wealthy family. What they say in the film, it's the same, it's the equivalent wealth of the Samsung, Samsung family. But it's occupied Korea, occupied by Japan, and his father is kind of a collaborator. And Namjoon Pak, as he grows up and he becomes a communist. Now, think how dangerous this is in Korea in the early 1950s, and he feels like he has to get out or he's going to be arrested. But he's also... I take it South Korea. He's in, in South Korea, in Seoul. But he's also a musical genius. And he goes to Japan, and he gets a doctorate in Renaissance music, and then goes to study classical piano in Berlin, where he is the only Korean in the city that, that he knows. And he's just studying away this footage of him playing Schoenberg in a concert in Berlin. And he finds out about this guy named John Cage, who's going to come play a concert in Berlin. John Cage is an avant-garde artist who's pretty famous for, I'm not sure if the piece is called 42 Seconds, but he's famous for silence, for composing a piece that's just silence, is sitting at the piano for a long period of time with nothing happening. It's sort of, sort of, sort of like Mitch McConnell. <laughs> 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 that was a little mean, but we'll move along. <laughs> so Namju Pak goes to this concert and his life changes in an instant. He all of a sudden realizes that everything he's doing is old fashioned and wrong and that the world has changed and he wants to be like John Cage. And he goes up to John Cage after the concert and he says, teach me. And they become lifelong friends in the avant-garde world. Now, there's a, there's a repeating image in this film, but I think it says it all. What Namjoon Pak does is he films himself walking through the streets of Berlin, carrying a violin, I'm not, not carrying, dragging a violin on a long piece of string. Okay? He's walking through the streets basically saying, I disdain Western music. Right? I disdain your whole concept of what is music. Right? And he figured, and he realized he's an early person to say that Western music is colonialism. Right? Right. The other thing that he does, and this is a, a, a big leap. Uh, I'm going ahead, uh, far ahead in his biography. He's a starving artist in New York. Eventually he comes to New York. And he's trying to get grants. Now, he also, by the way, speaks 20 languages. 
Right. The, the more you learn about the guy, the more astounding it is. Right. And the film does a great job of just feeding you these little tidbits over time. So he's a starving artist in New York. And he really literally starving. Right? He's making himself sick because he doesn't have enough money. And one day he goes out with his last few pennies and he buys a statue of a Buddha, like a two or three foot tall statue. The guy is starving yeah. and what he does with his last dollar yeah. is buy a statue, statue of, a Buddha. of a Buddha. Not because he's religious, not because he's meditating, not because he's so into Zen Buddhism, but because he has an idea. And this idea is to put a camera on the Buddha and have the Buddha look at its own image in the TV screen. Become one with itself. Exactly. It's the first selfie. And it's a TV Buddha. And he gets an exhibit with this Buddha. And I, I can't remember. It's the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, whatever it is. They find out about this and the money starts to pour in. And this starts, really jump starts his fame as an irreverent video artist, which didn't exist before Nam Jung Pak was on the scene. Tell us the name of the film again, Larry. The name of the film is Nam Jung Pak. Moon is the oldest TV. We are speaking with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. This is Cool Films with Larry Hott, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. We're continuing the same inclusive programming that we've been offering since 2004 to students of all ages with and without disabilities. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, dance movement, cooking. Come take a tour. Scholarships available. Wholechildren.org. We 
continue Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. The name of the film you've been discussing, Larry, is? Nam June Pak, Moon is the Oldest TV. Moon is the Oldest TV, and it is available for viewing pleasure? It's on Amazon Prime, and it's also still playing in the theaters, as far as I know. And it's called Moon is the Oldest TV because people have been staring at the moon for all time. Actually, the way the title comes about is that the filmmaker is at the very end of the film is interviewing um, Maria Abramovich, famous uh, performance artist, and she asked her after after they stopped the interview, the camera's still rolling, and she says, "What's the title of the film going to be?" And the director says, "I don't know. We're thinking of lots of titles." And, and Maria Abramovich says, "Why don't you write down three titles, crumple them up on a piece of paper, we'll mix them up, and whatever I choose, that'll be your title." <laughs> and how this is this is during the credits, right? <laughs> so, so the director picks out one piece of paper, opens it up, and says, "Moon is the oldest TV." So that's the title. <laughs> wow, that's and that's the kind of film this is. In fact, wow. I want to say a little. I'm going to play another clip of the film in a second. I just want oh, to say, say something ab- about the narrative of this film. And to see you, documentary filmmakers out there, you aspiring filmmakers out there, biography is always the easiest story. Especially if it's somebody who has something dramatic in their life or does something, in this case, and this is the key word, visual. So this guy, Anamjoon Park, is a visual artist. And he's playing with the medium, the medium that most of us grew up with. Right? So the filmmakers... By what you're saying, what? The internet? I'm talking Videos? About tele- what are we I'm saying? talking about television. He's, oh. his, his subversion of the medium. In fact, in the film, you see quite a bit of commercials, but commercials that actually are using his imagery. All the image we saw, images that we saw in the early MTV, the distorted images, the weird doubling of people, he invented that. He created that. And he actually went to Japan and bought studio time so he could use studio equipment. He studied electronics so he could understand how to manipulate this. This guy was such a genius that he could actually learn the electronics and the engineering behind it so he could make these images. Not like what I do is pick up a camera that some other engineer designed, right, and push auto, right? No, he, he is the one who made, who made these controls work. But instead of, as, as one of the engineers in the, in the film says, he ruined everything that we were trying to perfect. We want a clean image. He wanted a messy, dirty, distorted image. Let's hear a clip from the film. Super Highway. He had a different sense of purpose, different idea of what an artist's job might be. History will repeat itself if we don't plan the future carefully. Television was the advanced technology in having influence on other people. We've had enough of that in the United States. I wanted to carve out a different path. But he was too early. Looking in the rearview mirror as usual. He wanted to carve out a different path. The challenge for the filmmakers here is how do you rise to the level of the subject matter? Because films either rise above, fall below, or hit the subject matter right on the head. Here we have very powerful visual subject matter, somebody who's subverting the form. But if you go too far in that as a filmmaker, nobody will be able to follow it or understand what you're doing. But this is a story. It is a story of one person's life. 
right? And luckily a person who was born in the age of, of, of the film and television medium and became famous enough that people took footage of him. So they have a lot to show. Plus they have his artwork. And when you see the artwork in the film, you say, I've seen that. I saw that at Maspoke. I saw that at the Museum of Modern Art. I didn't realize all of it comes from the mind of one great man. And in the film, sadly, he has a stroke. And he can barely walk, he can barely move, and he can barely talk. And then he creates some of his best work. Just imagine the Great Hall of the Guggenheim, and he fills it from the bottom floor to the top with laser beams and television sets in the most incredible display. And he does this after he has a stroke and he has diabetes and he's kneeling on his deathbed. That's Nam John Pak. Tell us again, please, Larry Hot, the name of the film it's is? Nam Jun Pak, Moon is the Oldest TV. And it is available where? It's on Amazon Prime. I've rarely heard you give such a glowing recommendation to a film. The you film, you the, love this film. The film literally glows. Well, and I... I could not take my eyes off it. I'm going to watch it again because I, you can't get all of it in one viewing. Bill, I just want to say that, you know, it's another medium film is for storytelling. Is there a better storyteller than Larry Hott? Well, well thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Hott, thank you so very much. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hott. Thank you for being with us today, Larry. Just a joy to have you. Thanks. You're Bye. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. WHMP Northampton, WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. New death and destruction in Ukraine. Officials say at least 16 people were killed, including a child, in Russian shelling that set fire to a market in the east, destroying stalls and mangling parked cars nearby. It comes the same day as an unannounced visit to Kiev by Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Pentagon correspondent Cammie McCormick says he's announcing $1 billion in new U.S. aid to the country. At a meeting with Ukraine's prime minister... I'm here in large part at the behest of President Biden to reaffirm our commitment to stand with you. The new money comes as U.S. allies worry Ukraine is becoming bogged down in its counteroffensive against Russia. Blinken claims there's been good progress in that counteroffensive. In the words of the U.N. Secretary General, the dog days of summer aren't just barking, they're biting. The agency's weather service says this past summer was the hottest on record in the northern hemisphere, and it's still sweltering in parts of the U.S. 
Unair-conditioned schools in Baltimore are letting kids out early. This parent doesn't get it. Everybody should have air. I mean, you got air in your car, you got air at your job. Why not in our schools? President Biden still testing negative for COVID after the first lady was diagnosed with mild symptoms Monday. Yale University, Dr. Megan Ranney tells CBS Mornings. We're really not going to know if he's out of the woods until seven to ten days after he was last around her. Mr. Biden's been wearing a mask again, his wife staying at their home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Tough times in the streaming business. Roku is cutting about 10 percent of its workforce and limiting new hiring part of a move to cut costs after a series of quarterly losses. A new move in Spain's hot soccer controversy. Spain wins the World Cup. Prosecutors say star player Jenny Hermoso is accusing the country's federation president of sexual assault for kissing her on the lips without her consent after the Women's World Cup final. Luis Rubiales, who claims it was consensual, has been suspended but refuses to step down. And the Rolling Stones are releasing their first new album... Their first album, that is, of new music in 18 years. Anger is the first single from our new album called Hackney Diamonds, which is why we're in Hackney, which comes out in October the 20th. Mick Jagger and his bandmates have just been interviewed by Jimmy Fallon at the theatre in the London neighbourhood. It's like when you get your windscreen broken uh, on Saturday night in Hackney. And and all the bits go on the street. Mick says the new disc includes love songs, ballads, even country tunes. The Dow is down 101 points. This is CBS News. You need to hire fast and hire right? You need Indeed. Their all-in-one hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates efficiently. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Embarrassed by ugly yellow toe fungus? Living with toe fungus is, it's embarrassing. I was afraid to take my socks off. I hid my yellow and crumbly toes from everybody. Introducing Crystal Flush. Crystal Flush is the only FDA-registered 2-in-1 home treatment that attacks your toe fungus from both the inside and out. Crystal Flush's new and different combination system knocks out toe fungus for good. Guaranteed. Crystal Flush is different. After just a few weeks, my fungus was gone. I mean, 100% disappeared. Crystal Flush was the only thing that ever worked. So if you're skeptical because you tried a bunch of other stuff, Crystal Flush is different. This is a game changer. Crystal Flush is now available without a prescription, but it is not available in stores. Get your risk-free supply today. Go to crystalflush.com. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L flush.com. Stop being embarrassed by ugly yellow toenails. Go to crystalflush.com or call 800 For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. There is a heat advisory in effect through 8 p.m. Thursday for Eastern Hamden, Eastern Hampshire, and Eastern Franklin County. The heat index will be near 100 degrees. Cooling centers will be open throughout Western Mass, including Northampton, where Forbes Library, Division of Community Care, and Mana Community Center are all open today and tomorrow. Lilly Library will also be open tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. The remains found on Rawson Island on August 23rd by a group of students has been identified by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner to be Brian Cornwell from Greenfield. Cornwell was reported missing in December 2020 and was 57 years old at the time. The cause of death is still under investigation by the Greenfield Police Department, Montague Police Department, State Police Crime Scene Services, and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit attached to the Northwestern DA's office. Anyone with information is asked to call 413 774 3186. 
Massachusetts residents may soon see more level electrical rates throughout the year as the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities has issued an order to mitigate large seasonal changes in electricity supply rates. In January of this year, the DPU began an investigation into pricing after customers saw significant rate increases in 2022 as a result of the conflict in Ukraine, regional constraints for electrical supply, and the coldest winter months within the same procurement period. Mostly sunny today with a high of 88 to 92 and a light breeze. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures 70s and 80s and an overnight low of 64 to 70. Tomorrow it's a mixture of sun and clouds. Hot with a high of 90 to 94 and the chance for some late day or evening showers. Showers also possible on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, we have, uh, we're blessed. We have uh, a very serious musician in the house, and he is in the house because we want to. He doesn't look that serious to me. He looks like a lot of fun, actually. Come on. Serious fun. Yeah, seriously fun. That's right. We're, we're, we're here to talk about a wonderful fifth year event that's going to be happening in East Hampton. It is, and here to talk to us about it is the director, Jonah Keane. So talk to us. We are looking right in the face of the Arcadia Folk Fest, which is going to be happening. When is it going to be happening? Where is it going to be happening? And what's going to be happening? Yeah, absolutely. It's happening not this Sunday, but the next, September 17th. So we've got a week and a half, Arcadia Folk Fest. To look forward to it. To look forward to it, absolutely. Um, It's the fifth annual. It supports Mass Audubon's work out of Arcadia Wildlife Sanctuary, but also in the western part of the state. It's an amazing event. We did it to start celebrating our 75th anniversary a few years ago and signature sounds came along and said hey we'd love we'd love to help you with this um and then we're like whoa we think we hit on something here this is really sweet having a music fest at a wildlife sanctuary everyone just loved the vibe of it and we're like well let's keep let's keep doing it the birds Uh, must love the sound hey sure they must yeah (laughs) yeah so so who's going to be there well, fortunately, with us here, the Suitcase Junket is going to be there, uh, one of our local um, bands that's uh, one, of, one of my favorites on the, on the uh, list. Uh, but also Valerie June um, is one of our headliners, along with um, James McMurtry in band, two of our, our headliners. So um, also from one of our local bands is also Wallace Field is going to be here. So a good, a good mix of folks from out of town and some locals. Bill, you were, you were saying uh, before we went on that uh, you actually attended and expected to see a few dribbling bodies. Well, it's the 75th anniversary for Arcadia. I thought, so, you know, some bird watchers would show up and maybe a few people who wanted to see worms and, you know, otherwise <laughs> dig in the dirt and that sort of thing. It's a wildlife sanctuary. And I don't live far from there, so I rode my bike down. And, oh, my God, it was like Woodstock, only better. Uh, <laughs> but really, I mean, it's a big event. The musicians were fabulous. Many of them I did not know until then. And I'm saying, who put together? This is an extraordinary festival, and it's so much fun, and it's family-friendly, and it's a beautiful venue. And, oh, my God, you guys have done an extraordinary job with this. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, the venue, I mean, I'm biased. I work there. I love it. Uh, but we take advantage of it being there. We have one of our state. we have three stages, and one is an acoustic stage that's in the woods. You actually have to walk up the trail. You're surrounded by the forest. Just a just a lovely, lovely spot. And just want to say, again, that the, fa- the family-friendly part that you mentioned, it's really, it's a... 
we have kids events, we have crafts, we have Little Roots, another local band that's amazing with for for kids. Well, let's unpack uh, that, Jonah Keen. Uh, who's the we? Who puts it? Bill said whoever put it together. Who puts it together? It's a combination. So Signature Sounds and us, Mass Audubon, put it on together. So uh, it's, a, it's a team effort together. They've been fabulous. Jim and Peter over there and their whole team have been helping to create the the, the lineup and help put that side of the fest together. And we organize a lot of the other side um, to some of the other logistics. Our, a big focus for us, since it's, you know, we love having a music fest, but we also want to really fit with our mission, is it's, we really focus on sustainability. So we want to really model how to run a sustainable event. So this event is solar-powered. There's no generators at all. It's a 100% solar-powered event. It's zero waste. We don't, at the end of the day, we have, like Bill said, we have a whole bunch of people there, like 1,800 people that come through. At the end of the day, we'll have maybe half a bag of trash that's produced from, from the whole event. Most of it is, is compost that ends up at, at the end. Uh, our, and one part that I'm a big fan of that is, is it's a little bit of controversy, but it's interesting to see, is we're 100% plant-based food. Uh, so that we're not trying to tell everyone to be to be vegans and to only eat plant-based food, but we are saying, hey, look, you can have delicious plant-based food and reduce your impact for a meal, uh, but you don't have to eat this way exclusively. But see, it's, it's possible to have some really delicious food. So that's a, another part of our, our steps to show how we can be a really sustainable event. How rare is it to have a, something as large as a folk festival that is free of hypocrisy? Amazing. <laughs> Meanwhile... Who is this seriously fun guy who you brought into the city? It's like Matt Lorenz is here, and you called him Suitcase Junket. Is that right? Yeah, that's the name of the band, but it's just me. It's just um, you I here. Didn't bring, I didn't, yeah, well, it's a one-man production, uh, so I usually sit on a whole pile of uh, homemade drums, and it sounds like a sort of three-piece garage band, but it's just me up there spazzing out. You also have, with us and with you today, an amplifier it looks like it has a history. You it's want? older than I am, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, how, the, how, um, how old are you? Um, uh, well, now we're getting personal. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. We're getting this. <laughs> Boy, just wait till what comes next. <laughs> I was born in 1982, and this amp was born sometime in the mid-50s. Well, so it also looks like your guitar has been used once or twice as well. This actually I pulled out of a dumpster at my alma mater, Hampshire College. Uh, <laughs> and I thought to myself, what are they teaching these kids throwing away the, their guitars, you know? But then I realized I was, you know, a graduate dumpster diving at my alma mater. So what did I learn? Well, does it still work? It works okay. Can it's, we um, hear it? It's sort of um, a, been a, a project based on restriction. Um, it doesn't play that well in any sort of standard tuning, so it's tuned open. And the whole kind of suitcase junket project came from uh, came from this guitar. Explain open tuning to our listeners who don't know what that. Well, is. right now I'm not I'm not putting my fingers on it at all, and it's a, a chord that sounds. Sounds, know, okay. It's a G chord. Uh, it's an open C. Open C. Yeah. Okay. So you just hit all all there no fingers it's the on the only fret. place that no guitar this guitar likes likes to be. No fingers on the frets. <laughs> That's right. You hit the six strings and, and you have a C chord. Nice. It's a good place a good place to begin. Yeah. We're going to get a taste of Matt Lorenz, who's also known as the Suitcase Junket, the name of his band, which is him, and he's going to be playing at the Arcadia Folk Festival on the seventeenth. Please, can I play a tune? Please All do. Right. We were waiting for the times to change With small acts and weather vanes Working out all the well-earned blame In a chorus of no's Loose teeth and a gentle touch 
didn't really ever come to much The very thing that we loved and such What a predictable show But it's just another human disaster Just another human disaster On the side of the modern road we're on You can't look away You can't look away
I thought I was coming into work today. I didn't know it. I should be paying a ticket to be in this studio <laughs> yeah. right now. But uh, this is not the only chance we're going to have to hear Matt Lorenz, also known as the Suitcase Junket. And uh, Jonah Keen, when else can we hear uh, Matt coming up? Well, come on out on Sunday, September 17th, Arcadia Folk Fest. He'll be playing there along with Valerie June and James McMurtry and a number of others. So, yeah, don't miss him. And how can people find out about tickets and timing and all that stuff? Yeah, ArcadiaFolkFest.com. Um, the timing, you know, little plug here, it starts, it's on Sunday, but it ends at 6.30. So, you know, you can come on out and you can get home at a reasonable hour. So don't, you know, don't worry about that. Come have fun. Stay with us for the day. Perfect. You can bring food, but you can purchase food. Absolutely. And you can bring all the kids and the family and the grandparents, and you get a walk in the woods to one of the stages. It's, to me, just a, just the most wonderful venue, and it just feels fabulous. Yeah. A rain date, if there is one? No. We have sunshine coming. Okay, because yeah. it's, a, it's a folk festival, and it's going to work. Yeah, And it's going to be on the 17th, and it's you just described a very wholesome Woodstock. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with uh, Jonah Keen and with Matt Lorenz about the Arcadia Folk Festival coming up on the 17th of September. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home. Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank. With offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. The UMass Football Home Opener is on September 9th, and it's a special Youth Day celebration. Enjoy free pregame Kids Zone activities, a bounce house, games, face painting, autographs, and more. The Kids Zone fun begins at 1130 in front of McGurk Alumni Stadium. And the first 500 kids wearing their youth football jersey will receive a free mini football. Visit UMassAthletics.com slash tickets. Youth Day in Amherst for UMass Football is September the 9th. The fun starts at 1130 with gates for the football game opening at 2 o'clock. Go UMass. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're talking about an incredible fundraiser and an incredible event that's going to be happening at the Massachusetts Audubon Society's Arcadia 
Wildlife Sanctuary. It's going to be happening on September 17th. It's the Arcadia Folk Festival. It's the fifth annual folk festival that will be held by Arcadia. And with us to tell us more is uh, Director Jonah Ken and also Matt Lorenz, who's been entertaining us. He is the he is the suitcase junket. Mm-hmm. He is a band um, unto himself. But Jonah, so that uh, the actual curation that is. Who chooses the bands? You said it's a collaborative effort with, with Signature Sound, right? Yeah, the bands mostly is Signature Sounds. They do most of that work. That's sort of their wheelhouse. So they take care of that side of it and the whole music, the music production side and a lot of the promoting. Um, we take more of take care of a lot of the site logistics and the focus on sustainability and you know figuring out okay how can we get our, our waste down to zero waste and working with our vendors to use us only compostable wares and that kind of thing making sure that we don't have any generators running and that we're all running off our solar panels that kind of stuff and when you're down there for the day i take it arcadia i mean it's a wildlife preserve um and nature preserve we can just go for a walk and see Arcadia? I mean, for, for those people who are listening who haven't been to Arcadia, you can hear spectacularly wonderful music and experience Arcadia all in one day. Really quite the event. Absolutely, yeah. The, you know, we're not, with the exception of the one trail in the woods where you head a little bit out on the trail to get to that, that stage, um, the trails are open and and relatively quiet, so you can just go for a walk at the same time. That's something you don't usually get at a music festival, a, little, a, a walk on a nature trail at the same well, time. Well, it's also what you don't usually get at a wildlife sanctuary. So how do you make sure, I mean, you were talking about uh, making sure that there's not much waste, that, but how do you make sure that um, these kinds of crowds don't disrupt those who actually live in the wildlife sanctuary? The wildlife themselves? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, part of it is having it be a daytime event and having it be a folk fest as opposed to a hard rock event um so it we really keep it pretty mellow it's you know we have the beautiful music coming from our from our stage there which is right by the visitor center but the vast majority of the sanctuary can hear can hear none of it it's really aimed aimed right there for the folks who are uh are there to enjoy the music so matt lorenz uh you obviously you're a musician a very talented one um but uh who contacted you and why are you doing this well, uh, you know, anything that Signature Sounds puts on is usually a good event. But, um, you know, finding out that it was a, a festival that has to do with, you know, nature and nature conservation is right in my wheelhouse. Because I, I grew up in the woods up in Vermont. I live out in the woods here in Western Mass. And um, I care, you know. It's And so it always feels good. You know, it's my job. So I, I, I go where I am paid to go. But it feels good when it lines up with your values, you know. Uh, is most of your uh, work is it? Do, do you write the songs mm-hmm. that you perform? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So most of the of the work is yeah, songwriting, um, arranging, recording, and then these days the only way you can really um, uh, earn a living in the music business is by touring and, and playing live. Yeah, so that's so you're not a cover junket. No, no, no. I've I've been known to work a few a few interpretations of songs into the set, but mostly for me, it's about about writing original material. Yeah. How'd you come up with the name Suitcase Junket? Um, early on, I was building a lot of my own instruments out of uh, kind of garbage and repurposed stuff, and so I looked up. I, I thought Junket, sort of like octet, might be nice. And when I looked up 
that word in an old dictionary, the first definition was a sweet meat, and the second definition was a pleasure excursion, and that though sounded great to me, <laughs> pleasure excursion. And I was playing, you know, suitcase bass drum, and it's not it's not a dessert that's not pudding. Yeah, sweet meat. Yeah, like a custard. Yeah, it's like a okay. British custard. Yeah, exactly. It was important in my youth. I won't even go back there, but yes, junk it. Yeah, junk it. Um, pleasure you know. excursion. I really yeah. do have to pay for a ticket to get into the studio. <laughs> so, yeah. and where do we buy tickets? We, we Tickets are at uh, ArcadiaFolkFest.com. Yeah. Yep. And, and get them in advance. They, the price goes up at the door, so you want to get them in advance. Want to tell us how much they are? Uh, they are sixty four ninety nine. They go up $10 at the door. Okay. Yep. And that gets in one, one person? One person, yep. Um, Ten and under are free. Uh, and then that's the price for... One. And it is a fundraiser. What we it should, is a we fundraiser, absolutely. Yeah, so it supports Mass Audubon's work in Western Mass. Um, and so the ticket, your people buying tickets are supporting our work as well as our sponsors that are a big part of the, the financial success of this. So Danko Modern is our presenting sponsor this year. Uh, Northeast Solar and River Valley Co-op are some of our leading sponsors that help to make it financially beneficial for us so that it, it does support our, our work in the Valley. And it does work the money goes to work to preserve arcadia which is a magnificent place that's right arcadia and the work that we do out of arcadia so for example we're working to bring every third grader in holyoke comes to arcadia and we go to every third grader in holyoke that's helping to support that work right because the educational programs in arcadia are something i mean to behold this catalog of what you do and who who you teach and which classes come and from what schools it's really really impressive yeah, yeah, it's a big part of our work right now is focusing on addressing the inac- inequitable access to nature that we see around the country. And surprisingly, in Massachusetts, we have one of the biggest gaps in Massachusetts between uh, access to nature for whites versus non-whites. And so we're working to address that. We're working in our communities in the valley where there is less access, places like Holyoke or, or Springfield, trying to bring environmental education programs to those kids and then also bring them out into, into nature. It really sounds fabulous. So, uh, one more time, when's it going to be and where can people get, get tickets? ArcadiaFolkFest.com has all the information you need there. It's going to be Sunday, September 17th. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, runs till 6.30 p.m. Nice day. Head home in time to get a good night's sleep for Monday. That's great. So, we're going to ask Matt Lawrence, who will be playing on, on uh, the 17th at the Arcadia Folk Fest, uh, the suitcase junket to play us out. All right. See you there. Black holes and overdoses, black holes and overdoses, are black holes and overdoses, oh me, oh my, oh, me, oh my, oh, me, oh my. When it's in your mind, got a gravity that makes you go blind. It's the biggest, smallest thing you can find. Oh, Ryan, save me. I can't take it, won't you please help me out of this torrent? The black holes and overdoses, black holes and overdoses on black holes and overdoses of me, oh my. Me, oh my, oh me, oh
like to say that I'm up to four For to keep a head out of wet Out of wet in the doom and the dread It killed my pain and it killed me dead Now can't save me I got angry I just wanted to be back In that feeling We out? Good Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. There is a heat advisory in effect through 8 p.m. Thursday for Eastern Hamden, Eastern Hampshire, and Eastern Franklin County. The heat index will be near 100 degrees. Cooling centers will be open throughout Western Mass, including Northampton, where Forbes Library, Division of Community Care, and Mana Community Center are all open today and tomorrow. Lilly Library will also be open tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. The remains found on Rawson Island on August 23rd by a group of students has been identified by the Office of Medical Examiner to be Brian Cornwell from Greenfield. Cornwell was reported missing in December 2020 and was 57 years old at the time. The cause of death is still under investigation by the Greenfield Police Department, Montague Police Department, State Police Crime Scene Services, and the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit attached to the Northwestern DA's office. Anyone with information is asked to call 413-774-3186. Massachusetts residents may soon see more level electrical rates throughout the year as the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities has issued an order to mitigate large seasonal changes in electricity supply rates. In January of this year, the DPU began an investigation into pricing after customers saw significant rate increases in 2022 as a result of the conflict in Ukraine, regional constraints for electrical supply, and the coldest winter months within the same procurement period. Mostly sunny today with a high of 88 to 92 and a light breeze. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures 70s and 80s and an overnight low of 64 to 70. Tomorrow it's a mixture of sun and clouds. Hot with a high of 90 to 94 and the chance for some late day or evening showers. Showers also possible on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hips, shoulders, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 
Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we have, uh, we're blessed. Every month we get to talk to Todd Gazda. He's the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, which gives literally services for the dozens of local school districts. He himself was a superintendent. Todd, you were superintendent of Ludlow for... Nine years. Nine long years. Nine short years. <laughs> nine years. <laughs> and you have had so much to do with so many superintendents in this region. Um, and superintendents have been in the news lately. Um, there are challenges that face educational leaders. You try to move to a system that you can move forward in a highly polarized political environment. Um, and uh, you're quite familiar with um, the difficulty uh, that school committees have in hiring superintendents, the criteria that they use to choose between sometimes very competent um, and accomplished people whose credentials are impressive, and decisions have to be made. So um, tell us, the superintendent, what do you look for in a superintendent? You know, I, I think... The two things I most look for in a superintendent and, you know, even a building administrator like a principal or assistant principal, um, the special education director, uh, would be the ability to communicate effectively. Uh, I think communication is the key because if a superintendent is going to be successful in their district, they have to be able to communicate effectively. Uh, and that means being responsive. Uh, I always tried to have and still do uh, a 24-hour rule for turnaround for emails uh, where I respond within 24 hours. Uh, 24 to 48, you know, maybe if it's really swamped. Uh, but if you can let people know that you've received their communication, you know, maybe it's as simple as saying, uh, I've received your communication, I need to look into it a little, I'll get back to you and follow up. Uh, just that, that, you know, recognition that you've received it helps. And then to be able to respond uh, to the concern that's being expressed. Uh, if you can do that, a lot of times uh, problems will stay small. Well, I, I think what you just described is anybody in any leadership role has yes. to be a good communicator, has to be responsive to people within a timely way. But there's something different, I think, for, as a layperson in, in a superintendency, which is you also have to be an educator. And that's, a, that's kind of a different tier of human interaction to be able to uh, make people feel safe enough to admit they have things to learn. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not. And it's, um, you know, at its core, education is about children. And if we're talking about children, people are going to be emotionally involved. Uh, and if they're emotionally involved, uh, it heightens 
the importance of everything. And so it's really important. Another factor, uh, and it's I'll give away since I'm not hiring principals anymore, but when I was a superintendent and used to hire principals, I used to ask what they thought was the most important characteristic of a building principal. Uh, and I got a lot of good answers, like trustworthiness, um, you know, ability to understand the curriculum, ability to work with teachers. But I never really got the answer that I was looking for. And the answer I'm looking for in that question is what is the most important characteristic of a building leader was empathy. The ability to empathize with that person who is sitting across the table from you. That person may be angry. uh, That person may be upset. They may be crying. But the ability to put yourself in their position to understand their concern and their problem from their point of view uh, is critical to making an effective uh, building leader. The interesting thing to me is that our superintendents, uh, who are, as I said, usually their credentials are you know, you see stars in your eyes because yeah. they've done so much and they've earned their doctorate and they've written and they've uh, worked in education. But those decisions are being made by school committees, which are comprised of volunteers, mm. often parents, people who care about the education of children, people who also care about the taxpayers not overpaying um, for the quality of education that they seek. Um, it's, it's not easy on school committees either to choose a superintendent, is it? It's not. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, a lot of times it's a crapshoot. Uh, there, uh, there are people who can present very well in a interview setting uh, that when, you know, you put them in the real world uh, and things just don't line up with what that interview was. And or uh, somebody who interviewed, you know, can interview not that great uh, and yet absolutely knocks it out of the park when they hit the ground running uh, doing the job. And so, you know, there's there's a certain amount of... Uh, taking your best guess, doing it on faith, uh, and you know, trying to make the best decision you can given the candidate pool uh, and the people in front of you. Well, I got to ask the question. You are the executive director, Todd Gasta, of the uh, Collaborative for Educational Services, which provides services for local, regional school districts. What advice do you give to school committees about how to find? Superintendent, often it's a national search. People are coming from all over the country and with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of priorities. Um, you know, how do you advise? What would you say if you had a school committee sitting right in front of you, that one that was tasked with choosing a new superintendent? You know, not to uh, get too wrapped up in credentials uh, and to really focus on the person as an individual and determine whether or not they are a good fit for your community. Uh, Because the success of a superintendent really comes down to how well uh, they can, you know, kind of move the schools forward in the manner that the community that they're working in want it to be moved forward. And so it's important to have that match. One thing, Todd, that I'm interested in is this phenomenon that I've observed over the years of superintendents that leave one school district and go to another. And I would appreciate your perspective on that. It involves a number of different aspects of education, but I'd appreciate what you think about that phenomenon. It's it's one of those situations where when you come into a into a 
um, new school system as a superintendent, uh, there's a certain honeymoon period. You've got usually about a year's grace period where uh, you're not the person who just left, uh, who did some things that aggravated people. Uh, You're new. uh, And so, you know, you have that opportunity to really leverage that political capital of being the new guy uh, and to kind of just you know, move things forward. And there's there's a willingness to see what you're going to do on the part of staff, on the part of the public. Uh, are you going to live up to what you said you would do uh, when you took the job? Uh, and that's, that honeymoon period lasts about a year. Uh, and then, uh, because typically a superintendent will come in and listen first uh, to hear what the school system uh, is looking for, what they need, uh, identify areas that you want to work on. Um, But then they start making decisions. And every time you make a decision, uh, there is going to be a certain segment of uh, the population that disagrees with that that decision. And so over time, the segment of the population that you have made uh, decisions that disagree with them grows. And so it becomes more and more challenging uh, to kind of move things forward. And that's where, you know, having the ability to have form strong relationships so that even when there is disagreement about a path forward, um, there is kind of just, you know, that core relationship to support it so that uh, that disagreement doesn't become personal uh, and you can still maintain a working relationship. And so over time, that it gets harder and harder. And at some point, you're going to hit a big decision that you're going to have to make that could potentially alienate a large segment of the population or a very vocal section, segment of the population. And then it becomes, can you be effective in the role? Uh, Do superintendents generally have, I I don't mean this in any disparaging way, a shelf life to their tenure in the same way actually that mayors do? It can be three terms, four terms, or five terms, Mm -hmm. but at some point they say, this is it. Sports sports coaches, sometimes things aren't going well, they might not have done anything wrong, but we replace them. I think the average tenure for a superintendent in Massachusetts is somewhere between three and a half and five years uh, right now. Um, now, there are superintendents. I was in Ludlow for nine years. Uh, and, you know, by that time, I was one of the most senior superintendents in Western Mass. There are others. Uh, the superintendent um, in um, up at Gateway was there for 17 years uh, prior to retiring a couple of years ago. Uh, there are, you know, there was, uh, I think Jerry Paste over at Pathfinder was there for 30 or 40 years. Uh, and so, you know, there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, but typically a superintendent is somebody who has, uh, you know, years of experience in the public school system. And so by the time they move up into the role, they're closer to retirement. And so there's certain limitations there uh, at times uh, that can kind of cap it. Um, but, you know, as I just said, you're going to have decisions that accumulate that people disagree with. So, you know, if you can make it six, seven years in a district, you're doing really well these days. Well, that, that's what I'd, I'd like to know more about during your nine years as a superintendent. Uh, there's a number of people that mm-hmm. you have to collaborate with. Yes. There's those that are responsible for hiring you and potentially firing you That is, in the terms of your employment. That is your school committee. That actually makes policy 
and hires a superintendent. Then there's the people that you work with, the staff, the teachers, right, the, 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 the people that actually work in this school district, and then there's the students. Each of those cohorts have people who are going to agree with some things you do, disagree. So you're, you're sort of trying to be empathic. At the same time, you're trying to be collaborative and get people to on all these three different levels. And during your nine, your nine years, which was the biggest challenge, the student, the faculty and staff, or the school committee you worked for? You know, I was really lucky in that uh, I had very little turnover in my school committee while I was uh, in Ludlow as superintendent. And that provided a certain stability uh, and trust uh, so that it gave me the flexibility to respond to situations in the manner that I needed to. I think one of the most important elements in the success of a school district is stability within the administrative ranks. Uh, If you can get principals to stay long-term in a district, you're going to make effective progress. Um, Because when there is turnover at the building leadership level, um, then you have somebody else who comes through who might have different priorities and things get shifted. So you never really complete things if you keep having a churn in your administrative staff. And the same is true for a superintendency. If you rotate through it too quickly, there's not going to be stability so that you can actually make progress on the goals um, that you've worked together with your staff, with your teachers, with your community to set for the district. And so, you know, that stability is critical for really making effective progress as a school district. And school committees, you were lucky because quite often there's great turnover. We know some of the regional school districts right now, the school committees are under great flux and they're going to have to make decisions such as choosing uh, superintendents. And um, it might be hard to find equilibrium with people who don't know each other that well and haven't sat in an official capacity. So what would you say if you were able to talk to some of those committee members about finding balance sufficient to be on the same page in terms of hiring the head of their school system? You know, I think, you know, a, a, a good school committee member comes on board and starts by listening and learning. They need to learn the systems. They need to learn the processes, the procedures, the effective role between a school committee and superintendent. And that was one of the areas where I also had uh, a great amount of success in working with my school committee in that, you know, the school committee sets policy uh, and the superintendent is in charge of daily operations and implementing those policies. Uh, It's, when school committees try to get too involved in the day-to-day operations, uh, it, it gums up the works, and that can get create problems. Uh, and so, if uh, you know superintendents stay in their uh, implementation lane and recognize that uh, you know their responsibility is to give advice to the school committee in the creation of policies, but at the end of the day, it's the school committee that creates the policies, um, and then um, you know recognize that you may not always agree with those policies. But as long as those policies don't violate, you know, the law or your moral code, uh, it's your responsibility to to implement them. I know as a superintendent, you have to balance the books. You're responsible to make sure there's enough pencils and erasers on every desk, right? And I know that you also have to manage personnel, make sure that uh, that uh, people are treated fairly in their employment and respectfully. But in terms of teaching and learning, what actually we want our schools to do, our children, um, how much should a superintendent be involved in actually the, the, 
what goes on in the classroom? You know, the superintendent's role, and this is really important, is really to set the tone and direction for the district. They work together with all constituencies, building principals and administrators, um, teachers, uh, communities, families, parents, local officials, to kind of build a roadmap forward for the district. But then it needs to be similar to, you know, this the superintendent, the school committees, you know, knowing their role in superintendent knowing their role, one of the places where superintendents kind of get tripped up uh, is when they don't stop being a principal. Uh, they need to let go of the, the job that they were in to be an effective superintendent and let their principals run their buildings and have a lot of autonomy to do so and then provide them with the support and resources to set the directions they feel are important for, the dis- for, the, for their individual buildings under the larger umbrella and strategic plan of the district. Uh, that type of model allows for responsiveness uh, at, in, within the building setting. And that's why, you know, as a superintendent, you know, there's a, some these days particularly, uh, a lot of time people with concerns go straight to the top because the superintendent is in charge of it all. Uh, but at the end of the day, they need to talk to the building principal first or the teacher first uh, and then kind of work their way up the chain of command if things don't work out because it's those individuals that actually have the uh, control to fix the, whatever the concern might happen to be. We are so lucky to have Todd Gazda here in studio. He's the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. The Collaborative provides services for roughly three dozen local school districts in this region, many of which are involved in a search for a superintendent. When we come back, it's the beginning of a new school year, and we want to talk to Todd Gazda about starting an academic year. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit Hug HugYourMoney.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 
Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com slash family. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And with Executive Director Todd Gazda of the Collaborative for Educational Services, it is the beginning of a school year. There's a lot of lunchboxes being loaded onto uh, school buses these days. Um, it's also the political times we're living in. We, we see a lot of school committees, a lot of governors sort of imposing their ideological views on what happens in the classroom for our children. Your thoughts? It has, uh, you know, to be quite candid, become a brutal environment uh, to lead a school district in. Um, there, you know, in the past, uh, it was, you, there were always those, those things you knew were going to, you know, uh, kind of create challenges. Uh, but you got used to people expressing dissatisfaction, let's say, with your snow day call. You know, it's, you're never going to get it right. Uh, whereas, you know, people, uh, you, you cancel school. Some people are going to complain you canceled it. Uh, you don't cancel school. You get hit for not canceling school. Um, you know, those were understandable. Uh, you know, the, the yearly calls to move the bus stops. Buses were a big one, too. Um, and so at the beginning of the year, you'd always get the calls uh, because people didn't like where the bus stops were. And so you got to kind of ex- expect those. And there was a certain ebb and flow to the school year where you could kind of uh, know when uh, certain concerns were going to rise to the top. You can't please everyone. Yep. Nope, exactly. And you, that was understandable. But in this environment that we are you know, living now, um, it I think it's it really comes down to um, the the language has gotten different. Uh, the attacks uh, are more personal. Um, people are um, louder uh, and more directed, and you know it, it becomes um, you know sometimes fixed in ideologies, uh, which you know kind of leads to the emotional aspect of it. Uh, so that to be a superintendent right now is draining. It's emotionally draining. It takes a toll uh, on fa- their families. Uh, my wife now says, you know, now that I've made the transition to my role as executive director and I'm a little bit more removed from that on a daily basis, uh, you know, she says she's got her husband back. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's that expectation that, and I, I, I'll be honest, one of the hardest things for me is there's an expectation that you have to sit there and take it without being able to respond and that you know or not hitting back because as soon as you hit back then it's like people turn around and point and said look what they said and it, it may you know so, but at the end of the day superintendents are human uh they have feelings they have emotions uh words hurt uh, and well, that package builds up. I, I got to tell you, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to think of myself as having some balance in, in the way I respond to things that I don't like. But this stuff like book banning and banning critical race. 
theory, education about the history of race in our country, it, it makes me angry. If I were in a position of authority, if I were a superintendent, I, I'd be biting my tongue so hard it would be bleeding all the time, right? Your thoughts? It is. It is very difficult. Um, and it is, it's, it's hard to, um, to empathize, empathize sometimes. Uh, as I said, one of the important, most important traits is empathy. Uh, and it's, it's hard to ad- empathize with those types of concerns and or attacks. As a, as a educator, uh, educators believe firmly in creating an inclusive environment in their school where all children uh, feel safe, uh, feel a part of the community, feel valued, feel that they can express their individuality, and we work to support that. To have that chipped away uh, and to create uh, segments of our student population who don't feel welcome uh, or who feel attacked for who they are, uh, that... It's not only of our schools, it's also of our community. To not teach our children that some people are different than you, and you can embrace them, and you can still love them and be loved by them, but instead to teach them to hate them yeah. and exclude them, what kind of message is that? And, you know, it, get a little, I get a, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we've been living it for years now. Uh, and, you know, we're not doing, uh, you know, we are still trying to create those environments. Uh, it's really the past seven years that the, the dialogue has changed. Yeah. Well... When you come back next time, I want to talk to you about two things. Okay. I want to talk to you about your law degree and whether that has been helpful as a superintendent and as an educator and where that fits in. And I'd also like to know what your experience has been with demands that books be taken out of the classrooms or off the library shelves. Right. Hidden in a different corner of the library where students can't access them. Yep. It's, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk to there. Um, Todd Gazda, I can't thank you enough for, for coming. It's, I know right now we have uh, school committees that are really looking for superintendents, and it's uh, an important job. It's a difficult job, and it's hard to find. And uh, I was listening really hard. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And you listeners, thank you so much for joining us as well on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Todd Gazda, walk the walk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon 